the key thing about music is creating empathy. And if you can do that as an artist, and if you can do that as a listener, and then sort of pass that on to your neighbor and, you know, to your kids, and the kids pass it on to the concentric circles. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look in the mirror and try to better yourself, teach your kids to better themselves. And hopefully that spreads throughout their community and your community and through the state and through the country and yeah. through the world. That's Tim McGraw, who has defined American country music probably more than any artist of his generation. McGraw's unparalleled career includes 46 number one singles, 19 number one albums, and sales of over 90 million records worldwide. He's won three Grammys and 20 Academy of Country Music Awards. And he's been one of the most played country artists since his debut in 1992. While this conversation focuses mostly on his life and music, McGraw has also carved out a successful acting career, most recently co-starring with his wife, Faith Hill, in the Yellowstone prequel, 1883. But I was especially interested to hear McGraw's thoughts about this particular moment in American history. In 2019, he co-authored a best-selling book with historian John Meacham called Songs of America, Patriotism, Protest, and the Music That Made a Nation. And McGraw is the rare artist who appeals to all sides of the political spectrum. His audience is a true cross-section of the American electorate, and he understands that audience better than almost anyone else. With off-year elections taking place in multiple states next week, I found his insights to be especially relevant right now. We talked about the importance of national unity, the decline in mutual empathy, and how music can be a conduit for seeing the best in one another. I'm Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. So Tim, I'm so excited to have you here today. I want to start by asking you about your childhood in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. What was your home like? What was it like when you were a kid? I grew up with my mom and my two sisters, Tracy and Sandy. We grew up in a pretty dysfunctional situation. I had a couple of stepdads who weren't the best guys in the world. But my mom, you know, she carried us through all of that. We grew up not having much, but we didn't really realize that we didn't have that much because we lived in the country and everybody around us was sort of in the same boat. Right. It was a very out in the country, working in fields, grew up driving tractors, working in cotton fields and moving irrigation systems. And being an athlete, you know, I was either on a football field or a basketball court or a baseball field most of the time. And were you interested in music at that point? Yeah, I mean, I always loved music. Gosh, I knew every song on the radio when I was a kid. And my mom loved music, so my right. mom sort of instilled that in me. I sang a lot in church, grew up in church singing in the choir and singing Easter cantatas and things like that. I would play eight tracks and albums all day and listen to all of my mom's music. And what kind of music was she listening to? She listened to everything. Of course, growing up in Louisiana, there was always country music. Always was right. a big part of my life. But um, gosh, I knew all the Beach Boys songs, all the Jan and Dean songs. I still love 70s rock. I mean, I'm partial to country music because that's what I do for a living. So I kind of lean towards that. But I love everything. So I understand your mother had you when she was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about what that was like for her and for you? Yeah, I'm sure it was tough for her. I mean, she got pregnant in, somewhere in her senior year of high school. And um, that's where she met my dad. He was playing minor league baseball in Florida. So I became what they call a grapefruit league baby <laughs> back in the day. So when she got pregnant, and then she didn't graduate high school because she was pregnant with me. And 
her family sort of shipped her off to Louisiana to stay with cousins, and I was born in Louisiana mm-hmm. at the Del High Clinic and Sanitarium. That tells you anything about me. But uh, yeah, she worked at a, I guess, a Trailways bus station at the restaurant. Hmm. And I don't remember this, but when she was a young single mom at 19 years old, she had me in a playpen right beside the jukebox. Wow. In this little town of Rayville, Louisiana, at this bus stop. And so I guess I was listening to country music from the time I was old enough to even crawl around in a playpen. And so when you were 11, you learned that your real father was mm-hmm. a famous baseball player named Tug McGraw. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't understand. I remember I was going through my mom's closet looking for something and ran across my birth certificate and it had McGraw on it. And then McGraw was scratched out and above it was Smith written in cursive and hmm. handwriting. And I called her at work, and she came home and told me all about it. And, I mean, as any 11-year-old kid finding out your dad's a professional baseball player, it's kind of exciting. And then I got to meet him once, and he never acknowledged being my dad at that point. And then I never saw him again until I was 18 years old. Hmm. But, you know, I get asked a lot of times, you know, how could you have a relationship with your dad after all those years when you guys were growing up without much money, and he was making millions of dollars playing ball, and how could you have any sort of affection for him? And my thought process was that it, it made me think that I could do something with my life, knowing that I had that blood in me. If he could do it, I could do it. And so how did becoming a musician happen for you? Well, I, uh, I was in college, mm-hmm. actually. I went to college to play ball, and then I joined a fraternity. And the more I started floating kegs, the less <laughs> ball I started playing. <laughs> and then I picked up a guitar of my freshman summer, all of my roommates were gone. And mm-hmm. I was working a job that was four or five hours a day. And I didn't have any money, really. So I pawned my high school ring and bought a guitar. And I sat there that over the summer and learned about 50 songs and started playing at a catfish house close to where I lived. Wow. And started playing for tips with just a guitar. And that's how I started. And I was hooked ever since then. And I realized that it worked really well with the girls. Too. So that was a big influence. That was something that made me stick with it. <laughs> and so you were playing in restaurants and clubs. How long did it take until you got your big break? Well, I actually moved to Florida for about six months and put a band together and started playing clubs in Florida. Moved back to Louisiana to go back to school. And I just decided one morning that this is what I wanted to do if I was going to be serious about it. I needed to bite the bullet and be serious about it. And I remember calling my mom. And it took me a while to get the nerve up to call her to tell her that I was going to drop out of school. I was in pre-law, and she would always had big aspirations of me going to law school and being a lawyer. And, and I'd wanted to be a lawyer since I saw And Justice for All. Really? When I was like 13 years old, I decided that's what I wanted. The joke now I always tell people is I've paid more lawyers in my <laughs> life than I would have ever made as one. So I, I made the right decision. <laughs> but I had to call my mom and tell her that I was going to drop out of school and move to Nashville and expecting to get you know, sort of berated a little bit and say you're going to do no such thing. But first thing out of her mouth was, I'm surprised you haven't done it already. I think you should go. She said, if you don't, you'll never know. Wow. So So she really supported it. She really supported it. I sold everything I had. I bought a bus ticket and arrived in Nashville about two in the morning on a bus with my guitar and my suitcase. And so then what happened? I hung around on people's couches and finally found an apartment. And then I just started playing clubs around town. I played Printer's Alley, a place called Skull's Rainbow Room. I was a house band there for a while, and music people would come in and out. And then a friend of mine from Louisiana, Po' Boy Dons, he had a little crawfish hut in Tallulah, Louisiana. My fraternity brothers and I used to go, and 
I would sit in the back of the crawfish hut, and they would boil crawfish on Thursday nights, and I would play with a bunch of old guys. We'd play old Merle Haggard songs and all the old stuff that, that I knew and they knew. So I'd sit and play there every night, and the guy who owned the place had loaned me some money to record the demo tape, three songs, and uh, I went into Curb Records in Nashville. I kept trying to go into Curb Records and couldn't get in. I couldn't get a meeting with anybody, and finally I just walked in one day, and Mike Borchetta was at his office and played him my music, and he said, you're going to have a record deal. Wow. And the first project didn't turn out so well, and I thought it was sort of over at that point. And the label sort of forgot about me. Hmm. And so I started gathering songs up, and I didn't play anything for the management and any songs for the label. And I didn't let them know I was going in the studio to record. So I went into the studio, recorded my album, and then turned it in. And at first, they were a little freaked out because I'd went in and recorded an album without telling them, and they got billed for it. <laughs> <laughs> but when I turned the record in, they loved the music, and that was the album that really blew up for me. Wow. It's called Not a Moment Too Soon. Yeah. And we released Indian Outlaw off of that album as the first single. And my whole world changed. Yeah. And we still had club dates because I was playing a lot of clubs all over the country, small clubs. Mm-hmm. And when we first had the big hit, I kept all of my club dates because I was scared to death that I would have one hit. And if I made all the club owners mad by canceling my shows, that I'd have this one hit and it'd be gone. Right. And then I'd have to go back begging these guys to give me more gigs. So I kept all of those gigs. So we would play four nights a week at clubs, and then we play an arena on Friday or Saturday night. Wow. And I remember playing the clubs, and it was so much fun because we were blowing up, and we had this big hit record that we were still playing these small clubs, and they were just super packed, and there were people waiting in line for like a mile down the road. Wow. And they were putting video screens up outside in the parking lot for people <laughs> to watch because it was just sort of a crazy time in our career. Wow. And, you know, there's nothing more exciting than at the beginning of your career when everything's really starting to pop and happen. It was a fun time. I think the first two years that we started having success, I think we did 262 shows a year for those first two years. But we were kids, so yeah, so we could do it back then. So your new album, Standing Room Only, came out in August. Mm-hmm. If you could summarize this album, what would you say it's about? Well, you know, my last album, Here on Earth, came out right in the middle of COVID. And so I immediately started working on this record. And my process typically is I have an idea of the kind of songs I want to do. Mm-hmm. And all that the world was going through at that time, we were going through a lot. So I wanted to write or record a positive album. I mm-hmm. wanted some positive music, some life-affirming music, some music that spoke to your heart, a little cinematic vignettes of life. So I started writing songs in that direction. What happens is I'll write three or four songs, and I'll think, well, these are pretty good. These are going in the right direction. And then Sure enough, I'll get a song from a songwriter friend of mine that says what I was trying to write and says it way better. So my song ends up in the dustbin. Right. And and I record their song. So uh, I think one of mine ended up on the record, Nashville, California, LA, Tennessee, that I wrote with Lori McKinnon and Bob Minner, who's been my acoustic guitar player for 32 years. So we've been together for a long time. And so what was COVID like for you and your family? What was that year like? Well, I mean, I, I know it was tough for everybody, but we, kind of liked it because all of us were together mm-hmm. and we all stayed at home and, you know, we had game nights every night. You couldn't go anywhere, right. couldn't do anything. So we just spent a lot of time together. And, you know, we've been so busy throughout our career and with the kids going to school and the kids growing up and the kids going away to college and doing all the things that they wanted to do to have everybody back home and have that opportunity just to sort of just relax and just be with mm-hmm. each other. And it was kind of nice. I always think that my latest album is the best album I've ever done. And 
whether everybody else thinks that or not, it's a different story, but I have to think that. And the minute that I start thinking that my latest project isn't as good as my last, then it's probably the time that I should quit doing it. So you mentioned that some of the songs on this album are sort of personal vignettes from your life. Well, not necessarily from my life, but they're vignettes that I think, as a singer, what you try to do is you try to create these mini movies. Right. And try to create these characters. And what you try to do is you put yourself in the scene. As, oh, that's interesting. And, and then if you do it right, other people, when they listen to it, that's the magic of music. Then other people find parts of their life that those vignettes sort of fit. And other hmm. people can walk through that scene and place themselves as the lead character. When we come back, Tim McGraw talks about his North Star, our shared love of history, and how he thinks we're all more alike than we are different. More in a moment. So one of the things that I think is so interesting is, I mean, you're a singer, obviously, but you've also been an actor, you've written books, you've had so many creative endeavors. And I'm wondering, is there anything about all of these creative endeavors that sort of binds them together? Is there any North Star that you're really trying to explore with all of this creative work? Well, my North Star in general is my family right. and my wife. But artistically, I'm just always searching to improve what I do. And I think all art forms inform each other. Mm -hmm. And certainly I think, like, for instance, I think acting informs music more than my music informs acting. How? Well, you, you learn about characters and you learn about life and you learn about, you know, art's holding up a mirror to the world. Yeah. And that's the main thing that I've learned about it. That's what sort of acting has really done for me in a lot of ways that helps my music. And then writing books is just sort of an extension of that. It's just another creative outlet that, also, I think, helps inform my music better. It helps mm -hmm. me sink my teeth into songs better. Yeah. So speaking of holding up a mirror to the world, you co-authored a book with American historian John Meacham in 2019 called Songs of America. And it's about music through American history. Mm -hmm. And I'm a history nerd. Me too. So why did you decide to do this book? Well, you know, John's been a friend of mine for a long time. How did you meet? He lives in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And we got invited to a dinner party at his house, and we went, and it was such an interesting dinner party. So many smart people and great conversations, and there was a fan of his before, of his writing. And we started talking about stuff, and then one day I just sort of mentioned to him, you know, music has always been a big part of inflection points yeah. throughout our history. And I asked him, do you think that if we look far enough back that it would still ring true before music was on the radio or before music was so widespread? That's fascinating. What did he say? He said, absolutely. And then, yeah. So we started really digging in. And there were always songs that would spread around to different people. And in fact, we found, I think the first song that we talked about was before the American Revolution. Wow. And so we just started figuring out what these songs meant. What were mm -hmm. they talking about? What time in history did these songs come about? Did they make a difference? Yeah. I think back then, a lot of this music was like the town crier. Hmm. In a lot of ways that just sort of told stories about what was going on everywhere else when you couldn't hear about stuff any other way. Yeah. It's like passing down stories. That's so interesting. What surprised you the most when you were doing this book? Uh, how fast it went. Really? How fast the writing went. Because Meacham's so fast. Yeah. Because I had these great plans. I had this great idea. So Meacham and I are going to write this book. 
we're going to have all these dinners. We're going to have <laughs> dinner parties with all these friends. We're going to ask for suggestions and ideas while we're writing this book. And I think I told him about it in December. We decided that we were going to do it. And I think right after New Year's, he had written the first chapter and oh sent it God. to me. And I'm like, oh, my God, John, you're ruining my whole vibe. You're ruining <laughs> the whole plan that I had for that. You're taking the fun out of it. But but it was so great to write with him and send notes back mm-hmm. and forth. And I remember the first part of the section I wrote, he goes, you need to write this more like you instead of trying to write like me, Yeah, <laughs> which I could never do anyway. But he was giving me notes about how to write and you know, the style of writing that I should do instead of forcing myself mm-hmm. to write something that didn't ring true to him yeah. coming from me. So he was very good at that. And where do you think, you know, your music sits in this context? I mean, if future Tim mm-hmm. McGraw and John Meacham were looking back in time at this moment that we're in, what do you hope your music would tell them? I hope it's positivity. You know, I mm-hmm. hope it's about being a better person. Of course, there's love songs. And of course, there's breakup songs. And of course, there's fun beer-drinking tailgate songs. You know, I've done all those songs throughout my career, but I think the most meaningful songs to me are the ones that, um, for instance, Live Like You Were Dying. It's Mm -hmm. one of those songs. When I'm singing that song on stage and I look out at the audience, I feel fortunate that I don't feel like it's my song. I just feel like I'm the vessel that that song gets to go through. And I'm lucky that I'm the one that gets to do it. And it's also cathartic for the artist. You know, it's therapy for us, or for me anyway, when I'm in the studio singing you know, I learn lessons from the songs that I'm singing as well. Mm-hmm. I need to hear them just as much as everybody else does, right. I think. Yeah. You know, America is such a divided place mm-hmm. right now. And you've clearly thought a lot about how music speaks to not just sort of people's individual lives, but also the broader life mm-hmm. of our country. So I just want to get your take on this cultural divide. I mean, why do you think so many Americans feel so disconnected from each other? I don't know. I think Probably the 24-hour news cycle has the most to do with it. And mm-hmm. certainly, we're always on these devices all the time and, and hearing stuff that's not necessarily true or stuff that's just sort of this small segment instead of hearing what the majority of people really think and feel. And I think, for the most part, if we can get back to just realizing that we're more alike than we are different, and we all really have the same goals in life. We want a happy family. We want to make a good living. We want stability. We want good, honest people running things. I think that if we start looking at each other as partners in this thing called life as opposed to enemies, I think we would get a lot further Yeah, do a lot better. And I think we will. I think we're just going through a trying time right now. And I always try to just let my music speak to that, mm-hmm. to speak for itself and try to cut songs like Humble and Kind and yeah. Standing Room Only and, and right. Live Like You Were Dying. And hopefully those songs will convey my message better than I ever could talking about it. So I think that when you hear the songs, when you hear the kind of music that I make, maybe it makes you think a little bit. Sometimes I don't want you to think. I just want you to have fun and just let the music hit you. Right. But there are other times that I want you to hear the music. And it's not me placing my beliefs or what my worldview should be. And it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on. You know, we all just want to be treated decently. Right. And music is in some ways, as you wrote about, it hopefully can be a vehicle for some of that unity. Absolutely. I hope so. Yeah. You performed at Biden and Harris's inauguration mm-hmm. in 2021, and you performed Undivided with Tyler Hubbard. What was that experience like for you? That was fun. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was a great song to start yeah. with, and Tyler sent it to me. I knew right away we wanted to record it right, and do it together. And when they asked us to perform at the inauguration, we did it, you know, it was during the COVID period mm-hmm. when we did it. So we did it in Nashville. Yeah. But we felt honored and 
proud yeah. to be a part of it. And that was shortly after January 6th. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, what was going through your mind on that day? Talk about a major American moment. Well, that was one of the saddest days in, the, yeah. in our country's history, I believe. I believe that it was, it was tough to watch. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe that it had actually happened. Right. Hopefully it will never happen again. You've said in the past, you've described yourself as a blue dog Democrat. You've said you supported President Obama. I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about where you are politically right now. What do you make of Donald Trump and of his hold on such a huge part of this country? I'm not going to give him any air. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective and my world, I mean, that's just so far out there that I can't even put words to it. Hmm. But where I am is I want what's best for our country. Yeah. I want what's best for the majority of people in our country. And I, I think that everybody deserves the right to live their life in the best way that they possibly can and to soar in the mm-hmm. best way that they possibly can. And I believe in policies that do that. So what do you think is best for our country? Well, I think that we certainly need to get back to some civility on both sides. Yeah. You know, I think that we can get too carried away and not really listen to what's best for everybody. But you can't please everybody all the time. Of course. And there's no way to make policies that's going to include every single person on every single issue. But you have to do the best that you can to try to carve out and make progress mm-hmm. in the best way that you possibly can that covers the most people that you can possibly cover. Yeah. And you have to do that in a bipartisan way. That's the beauty of our country. And we need a strong Republican Party and we need a strong Democratic Party in order to make that work. And we mm-hmm. need people who are willing to work together. And once we get past all of this posturing, yeah. And get back to governing, then we'll be in a lot better shape. So what do you think of President Biden? Do you plan to support him again? Well, I mean, yeah, I think he's doing a great job. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that if you look at the policies that he's implemented and the, the results of those policies, I feel like we're making progress. Yeah. Well, the reason I'm so interested in your perspective on this is that you have been traveling and talking to people all over the country for 30 years. Mm-hmm. You've also clearly thought deeply about American history. You have, I think, as interesting a perspective on this as almost anybody. (laughs) So that's why I'm asking you these questions. In your mind, what are some of your top priorities that you'd like to see happen? Oh, boy. Uh, Gosh. I think women's rights. I'm a dad of three daughters and have a wife. I want to see a world where my daughters have control of every decision that they have. Yeah. Whether it be medically personally, or the way they want to live their lives. So you support abortion rights? I do. Well, I support women's rights to choose. Right. That's between a family, their doctor, and their God. And I don't think anybody else has any business being a part of that. Hmm. Yeah. What about guns? Well, I mean, I'm a bird hunter. I grew up duck hunting in Louisiana. I mean, I still love to bird hunt. But I think there should be common sense policies. Hmm. I think there should be some red flag laws. And I don't see any issue with that. And I think most of America agrees with that. That's true. Most of America does agree with that. You're exactly right. And I don't understand why we can't just all figure it out. But I'm not going to sit here and say I want to take everybody's guns away. It really has nothing to do with the Second Amendment. It has everything to do with just good policy. Yeah. And smart policy. Yeah. So I need to get the secret to marriage from you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Saying yes, ma'am, a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You and your wife, Faith Hill, you're both incredibly successful artists. You've collaborated as well as done your own solo work. You co-headlined three massively successful tours together called Soul to Soul. Your first hit together was It's Your Love in 1997, which is one of your top hits of all time. 
How did that affect your relationship? How did working together affect your understanding of each other? Uh, it made us closer. Yeah. I mean, we were pretty close right from the beginning. You know, she grew up in Mississippi. I grew up in Louisiana. So culturally, we grew up in sort of the same worlds. She was adopted into just a beautiful, wonderful family. Hmm. So she always feels really blessed to be adopted into the family that she was adopted into, a very stable and strong family. Not a lot of money, but, but a lot of love and a lot of concern for other people. And so we got, had that in common when hmm. we met and start making music. I mean, we're two different artists. We don't always agree musically. In fact, some of our biggest disagreements come when we're putting a tour together. Yeah. And we're trying to So like, like what show. are those disagreements? Well, face very type A. Like yeah. she's like, I'm a mess. I'll throw clothes everywhere. I mean, she's <laughs> always constantly only about picking my clothes up. Because, I mean, I spent 30 years living in a hotel, you know, <laughs> right. in and out. So I'm just constantly just throwing stuff everywhere. And she's like, you got to clean up after yourself. So I'm not type A when it comes to stuff like right. that. But when we're on stage, and this comes because she's such a natural, great artist. I mean, mm -hmm. she can sing anything and doesn't have to think about it. And she can perform anything and doesn't have to think about it. Right. And me, when I'm putting a show together, I'm very type A. Yeah. I want everything right in the right place at the right time. With the lights in the right place at the right time. You stand at the right place at the right wow. time. You do all those mm -hmm. things. You hit all your cues. And Faith wants to freewheel it a lot just because she's so talented. And she doesn't want to be constrained. So some of the time right. we knock heads a little bit. But we figure it out. And we always have a great time touring together. And the tours that we've done together, until the kids grew up, you know, they would always go with us and travel mm -hmm. with us. And, and then we didn't tour much unless the kids were out of school. Yeah. So one of the reasons I'm asking about this is because I'm a writer. My husband's also a writer. And couples where two artists are working in the same field is always so interesting so to So do me. you always ask his opinion on your pieces? Not on my stories that I write for Time because I have a great editor here, but he read my book. I'm reading his book. I've read all of his books, you know. And so I'm curious, what advice would you give to other couples where they're both artists working in the same industry? Wow. You know, understand that you're different. Yeah. I think that's the biggest deal is just don't think that because you're an artist that your spouse has to be an artist like you are. Yeah. And understand their own individuality and the mm. kind of stuff that they like to do. The yeah. kind of ways that they like to do things and what gets their artistic juices flowing may be different than what gets yours flowing. Hmm. And if you don't recognize that and pay attention to that, then you can really run into some problems. Yeah, that's but, great uh, But it, look, she's my biggest fan. I'm her biggest fan. I play music for her all the time. She's the first person I want to hear music. Like I said, we don't always agree. There's mm -hmm. songs that I've loved and put on an album that she goes, I don't think I would put that on an album and vice versa. There's songs yeah. that I've loved that she didn't record. I thought, man, you should have recorded that. But She's had enough success that I've been proven wrong so many times that I learned to trust her hmm. completely on what she wants to do. And she's learned to trust me on what I want to do. Yeah. And we also, when we first got together, we knew this was going to be tough. And we knew that it wasn't going to be easy for two mm -hmm. people who do the same thing to stay together and stay together for a long time and raise a family. Yeah. And we had a lot of long talks before we got married. And we knew what kind of family we wanted. And we also knew and made a promise to each other that we weren't going to run out the door the first sign of trouble. Right. That we we're going to tough things out. Mm -hmm. And we made a conscious decision that we we're going to be together and we we're going to raise our family together and we we're going to be a tight family. And it just isn't a part of our DNA as a couple. Okay, so we've talked about some of the major themes of your life and your career, but now I want to turn to some of the smaller, more everyday moments of your life in our final segment called The Last Time. Oh boy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. When's the last time you had a mullet? 
Last time I had a mullet, gosh, uh, probably, I would say 96. Wow. You know what? I admire that. I I couldn't grow a (laughs) mullet now if I had to. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, when's the last time you had quality time with one of your daughters? Just recently. We had all three of our girls at the house for a couple of weeks. It was my middle daughter's 25th birthday. Wow. So we just sort of hung out at the house, and she had some friends over, and uh, we got to spend a lot of time together, and that was fantastic. When's the last time you tried a new workout? I try something new just about every day. I'm always looking for some new equipment or some sort of new thing to do, some new way to move. And the older you get, the more you you start learning how to work your body a little differently. Yeah. I used to run all the time, and we would run seven or eight miles before a show and then go to a show. But, you know, now I've broken my foot two or three times, and knees are bad. Yeah, who needs it? So running's gone. (laughs) When's the last time your wife surprised you? Uh, she's, whew, she always surprises me. Some of them I can't talk about. Some of them she surprised me. <laughs> uh, she got me a really nice watch for our 25th wedding anniversary. Okay. That really surprised me. Yeah. And then when's the last time you got to really explore a city that you toured in? That's rare, honestly, because it's usually one night and mm-hmm. we get there quickly. And most of the time, all we see is the back of an arena and mm-hmm. the inside of the arena and a stage. I think probably when we played London a few years ago, getting out and just walking around London and just taking it all in and actually thinking, you know, I'm a country singer. I'm getting to play the O2 in London. <laughs> and so that that's fun. Wow. Well, Tim, I really appreciate you sharing so much with us. And I'm just so grateful that you decided to join us today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Tim McGraw's 17th studio album, Standing Room Only, is out now, and you can catch him on tour in 2024. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you, so please send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our in-studio engineer is Elliot Lowe. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmuth is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Michael Erlinger and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>